If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. Thanks for tuning in. So excited to have Jay Waljasper on the podcast today. It's one of those conversations I think will stick with you for a while because Jay really likes to get down to the street level and observe and then ask the hard questions about our culture. It's really difficult to create a place that people don't want to go. What's really amazing is how often we do it. In our conversation today, Jay quotes the Blue Zones Project, reminding us that we have to make the healthy choice the easy choice. And that's exactly what I'm hoping you get from this show. Every one of my guests has spent years thinking about the, how, to, how to create the health improvement situation. And it's my intention to, to bring these thought leaders to the table and help you make easy and simple choices to improve your health and your livelihood. If you're a new listener to the podcast, this is a show that explores our world through the lens of health. It's a subject that has lost the interest of our population in many ways, but it impacts every aspect of our lives. Uh, And these things that bring us wellness from food to environments, our policies, our care practices, and our relationships to our bodies, ourselves, and each other, uh, and the planet, are uh, important aspects that I like to tune into and look for solutions uh, when any aspect of, of this becomes out of balance. Because we start there with our intention set to improve things, we can only make progress, and it's it has has to start with a resource, and I'm hoping that this podcast can be a resource, so that we can uh, really you know take a closer look and understand what improvement looks like, so that we can make the changes to those parts in our world. If you like the show, and uh, would like to support me continuing to do these these podcast conversations, would you consider donating monthly to grow this project? Each episode takes about 10 hours to produce. And listen, it's a joy to have these conversations, and I can only hope that through this effort, I will build a community around health improvement and hopefully empower more people to make the right choices for themselves and how they want to make improvements to their own health, uh, be of service to others, and make a lasting impact on communities with these choices. Uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash highway to help to donate and do your part uh, would you consider five dollars a month talking one large cup of coffee sacrificed that will help help deliver this message to a bigger audience because that's what you'll be doing with your support and if you like the content produced here on on highway to health you might want to check out the fusion 2.0 conference coming to minneapolis november 7th through the 9th if you haven't checked out my episode from a couple weeks back with rosie ward give it a listen Rosie and Salvio Partners are inspired. Um, they're, they're a group of people working to improve wealth, uh, workplace wellness. And as she explained, the conference is designed to be more than just inspiration. They want to see real change happen in the workplace and in our culture in general. They've set it up with constructive breakout sessions, so you'll have some practical, actionable takeaways to start making the changes you'd like to see and to create meaning in your work and life. Go to fusion the number two dot com. Sorry, 
fusion2conference.com. Uh, check out their lineup of keynote and guest speakers. There's 50 of them in all over the three days. It's a great way to find your people and uh, help the help build a, a supportive community around yourself. Register, register soon, though, because uh, spots will fill up. Also, uh, if your business wants to send five or more people, they do offer discounted pricing for the event. And Rosie also told me off mic that they're looking to bring this conference next year to other cities. So if you like what she's talking about on the podcast and want to invite them to a city near you, reach out to them on their contact page. Jay Wall Jasper, my guest for today's show, has been a journalist for nearly 40 years. You may know him best as the editor of the Utney Reader, but he's also written for National Geographic, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Yes Magazine, uh, and The Nation, as well as a number of books. And he's out constantly out there doing uh, public speaking engagements on the intersection of urban development and health and wellness, talking about how we can improve our day-to-day experience by considering some simple aspects of design like walkability, bikeability, and access to quality food, and places that bring people together. We recorded this one in Jay's Kitchen in South Minneapolis. We started out here talking about Jay's next book, which leads the conversation about how we all live together and what makes our neighborhoods work. Please enjoy my conversation with Jay Wall Jasper. What are you proposing right now for the for the for the book to, to these guys? Well, what we want to do is just chronicle. There's a lot happening. The guy I'm working on it with is a real estate professor at George mm. Washington University. Yeah, and he's just saying, you know, the market is exploding for walkable communities. You can get a lot more money, and you know, he just can't. He's just banging his head about trying to figure out why they aren't building more of it. Yeah, and some of it's zoning laws, and just some of it is the real estate industry is very conservative in the sense that they just want to keep doing what they know how to do and not yeah. learn something new. But our idea with this book is just to say, you know, show that it's a it's a strong business trend, to show that there's a demand out there and just simply to get people to, you know, wake up that this is one of the things, you know, and it's good for climate change, it's good for affordable yeah. housing, it's yeah. good for social equity. It's just good for people's kind of happiness and contentment. And so just kind of draw attention to that. I mean, that's been said before, but there's kind of new evidence, and uh, and particularly from kind of the business angle. You yeah. know, this isn't just just the public health officials and um, you know kind of greens saying this is a good idea, but also right. the people saying, you know, there's this is sort of the, this could be the next. It, he's saying, and I think the evidence is there that you know the American economy got a huge lift from. Um, the automobile industry, which is really what sustained the American economy through the right. 20th century, that right. and warfare. Right. Um, and he said this could be the 21st century equivalent of that. Giving people what they want could set off a, you know, a sort of new era of, of economic prosperity. And if you think about, I mean, just the, mo- the more recent example is what's happened in Minneapolis, you know, in this, even in the last like 10 years, even less. I mean, yeah. I feel like the, the last five years, there's, there's a real draw to live close to the to the urban center in a yeah. way that's like yeah. that was that had disappeared through the eighties and nineties and early two thousands, and it feels like it's all all of a sudden coming back. And and you know this, I feel like just what's going on 
with you know these former small towns in America and, and you know what what people are sort of saying in, you know with their political voice at, at this point is like we want we want a place that feels familiar to us mm-hmm. and where we see we see faces that we recognize every yeah, day even yeah. if it's in urban places I mean I moved to Brooklyn for that reason that you know in 2000 I I was kind of I don't know for whatever reason I, I went for a visit in 99 and I came back and I said I, I think I need to be in in a community for a little while. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly no, it is, what it I is, did. It is funny. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's just, I think basic to human nature is that right. people want to be around other people. And, and we've kind of created a system that makes that really difficult, except in, you know, when you, when you're at the strip mall or whatever. Right. Where did so, you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Urbana, Illinois. Oh yeah. Which is actually a, it's a college town, older town, and it's fairly walkable. Yeah. I mean, so, and fairly bikeable. In fact, there, I was a, when I was a little kid already, they had bike lanes, um, on the, on the university campus. It's a university town. So, um, I think it just, it, it, I grew up with a sense that that was just normal. Yeah. People walked places and that people rode bikes places. And so yeah. I was always kind of surprised when I'd go other places and go, how come no one's biking? No one's walking. What's, yeah. what's wrong with this place? Yeah. I used to go, I used to visit my, my grandfather, after my grandmother died when I was seven, he moved to, he, they had been living on a, on a farm and he moved to this small town of about 2000 people. And they were roughly like 20 miles from Waterloo, Cedar okay, Falls sure. area, uh, Cedar Rapids, Cedar Falls. I always forget. Which Waterloo, way. Cedar Falls. Cedar, yeah. Cedar Falls. Rapids is right, like, right, exactly. You, you, know, know, you know, 40 miles down the road. Cause you went to university. Yeah, Iowa, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but every summer it was like this, the, you know, I would be announced in the in the newspaper. You know, <laughs> Kenny Monahan's son's coming to town, or grandson's coming to town. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'd yeah. walk into the cafe and I'd, hey, heard, yeah, heard you, you were coming. You know, and that's not nostalgia. I mean, that is some something that's part of our wiring. Yeah, you know, I always curse everybody. You know, we've just went through the state fair here in Minnesota, and uh, two million people showed up. You know, and yeah, sure, it's fun to eat the corn dogs and to watch the pigs. But the biggest reason people are there is just to be among all the other people without cars yeah oh yeah yeah i, I mean it's sort of like i always feel like i go a couple times every year and i feel like for me it's like hey this is like experiencing a european pedestrian zone without having to pay a you know overseas yeah. airplane ticket yeah 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 how did, how did you end up in minneapolis then i came here to go to graduate school and i left for a couple of years lived in chicago lived in des moines for a while and just uh got a chance to come back and jumped at it okay because uh, you know this is uh you know, it's a it has the urban amenities and, and yeah. kind of more all the time. What year was that? Uh, I moved I moved here first in 1978. Okay, and then moved back in 1984. Yeah, 1984. And um, but you know, it, it it has the things that you like about a city and kind of more so. Uh, and then it's got this incredible nature that you, you know just available. I just yeah. uh, I was on Saturday. I was down on the. You know what's called Pike Island or or, or uh, Wittatonka to the Dakota Indians, you yeah. know, and it's like a completely magical place, and it's right, you know, it's twenty five minute bike ride from my house, and it's you know it's in the sort of the epicenter of three point five million people, and you just feel like you could imagine the Dakota Indians, you yeah. know, you know, paddling up in their canoes. Yeah, it, it's true. It's it's amazing, and that, and that was one of the things that I I started to feel sort of deprived of in New York to some extent. Yeah. And it was just the the ease in which you could get to places like that. Um, if you if you really, I mean, you could you could take a subway, you could take trains, and they have the jitney that goes out to the Long Island area. Yeah. But 
it's a everything is a bit of work like yeah, plan yeah. plan four or five hours to get out of the city <laughs> no no <laughs> or to just, get into yeah. nature you know well and you know seattle portland you know those places have great nature in the city but i mean just to be able to you know a person can come home from work and hop on their bike and you know in five five minutes i shouldn't say they didn't ride their bike to work and back but you know in five or ten minutes you can be in somewhere that really feels natural yeah uh, you know Less than a five-minute walk away, there's Lake Harriet here. Yeah. So it's amazing. And if you, you know, and we're becoming, I feel like, you know, we're becoming more like Brooklyn in terms of the, you know, the coffee shops and the bars and the restaurants and the kind of more shops around and things like there's that. There's more walkability. I mean, I, I positioned myself very specifically when we moved back to be close to London yeah. Hills because it just felt like something a little more my, my wife is is grew up there for the most part and before that moscow so yeah. just two giant cities and she was a little nervous about I mean, she <laughs> there, there were parts of her they, they did have something similar to what we have where people go to cabins in the summers yeah and but she would go to ukraine and that's yeah. where her, her grandma yeah, the was from, yeah the dacha yeah. so so the dacha was like a whole summer you know thing usually for them yeah um so we did that back and forth you know from from new york and went to my mom's cabin so that was a very sort of similar thing for her that felt but but the the year round living <laughs> and, and commuting in a place like this was yeah. different for a while. Yeah. She's gotten pretty used to it. And in fact, now when she goes to New York, she's sort of like the no, the noise pollution of New York starts yeah. is one of yeah. those things that I think starts to get to you. But but just being on the streets and my my kids went back for the first time in five years, and my daughter doesn't really remember much. She was two when when we moved here, so I think for her. I, I, you could just see it becoming impressed on her on her mind while we were there. Just what was you know what she was sort of soaking in on subways and on city streets. Yeah, and yeah, just different things. Yeah. And museums. That no, we I, I mean I love the energy in New York and and uh, you know I mean the Twin Cities. I think for a long time didn't know if it wanted to be a city or yeah, wanted to yeah. be kind of a suburb or yeah. you know or most people probably say a small town. And I think we've just kind of made the choice over the last ten to fifteen years that yeah that we want to be a city and and. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our neighborhood where we're sitting right now, you know, there was there was opposition to the first coffee shops that came in. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was, it was small opposition and there were a lot more people turning out the meetings that wanted them. But there was a sense that, this, you know, this was a nice neighborhood because there was nothing going on here. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you, thought, you, even the mom and pop places that, that were that were popping up. Yeah. It was just a kind of a built in thing that anything, you know, anything that would attract people then was just, you know, and I think the, the fear isn't. But they're going to be people. The fear is there's going to be cars. Yeah. Because people couldn't imagine, you know, that people would walk to a coffee shop. Yeah. You know, why would you drive to a coffee shop? Yeah. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose. Well, I remember, so so you came in 78. Yeah. And, I mean, that the sort of the, you know, the, the age of Mary Tyler Moore Absolutely. You know, period yeah, in yeah. Minneapolis. Where I do <clears throat> think that that Minneapolis was at that moment really trying to define itself as a city. You know, stuff was sort of happening around the U of M. Yeah. They were sort yeah. of a, a, you know a nightlife happening with like disco and all that stuff. And then somewhere probably around, you know, when you came back again, 84, because I, I grew up um, just North of of Minneapolis, like a, a, you know, first tier and, you know, Mm -hmm. partly second tier suburb where just right on the border where, you know, you're 10 minute, 12 minutes from downtown, but you could also walk to a, a cornfield. You know, yeah, it was like yeah, it was so. Yeah. There, everything was so close still at that point, and but in the, right around that time period, that sort of early mid '80s, you could just see the spread start to happen. It yeah, was just like yeah. pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think by the '90s, 
you know, the, the downtown area was was uh, was sort of problematic because it was a ghost town at night and there was a lot of crime yeah. for anyone who <laughs> dared go down there. <laughs> yeah, no, the streets kind of cleared out after five. No, it, it's really interesting, but I think that, you know, what's so interesting to me is that the thing that people most fear is the solution. You know, you gotta go back to Jane Jacobs and it's people on the street are the single best crime prevention mechanism there is because you know criminals aren't stupid they're not going to mug somebody you know when there's eight or ten people around all of them with cell phones that they can call (laughs) the police you know i mean so you know even if they don't intervene you know i mean so it's just it's just there's just i don't know it's a little bit the american psyche which is still i mean i think it's fading a lot but there's still that notion of kind of leave me alone you know and the you know the best way to ensure my safety is to be separate from all other people. Yeah. And yet, really, you know, you know, there's really safety in numbers in terms of just you know the healthcare in rural areas isn't as good. And you know, if someone broke into your home and and you know taped you up in uh, in a chair with masking tape over your mouth, you know, someone wouldn't know for three or four days. Right. I mean, and, and the, I mean that's, that's sort of an interesting thing to think about right now. Where where are we where are we at with the American psyche? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that I've had this conversation with a few people lately because I feel like we're at, we are at a bit of a loss of identity period as far as yeah. all this is concerned. It's a fraught moment. I mean, and I think, boy, I didn't sort of see some of the political events of the last two years happening. Yeah, and so you know, it's hard to say. You know, one. As we're talking about this, I'm struck over um, thinking about the the Pew Charitable Trust, which is someone that's been kind of doing um, research and and uh, data diving on um, you know the American public for God, I think thirty or forty years, and they did a big uh, political survey, and and what they found out was that the most the uh, the what the element that that most determined whether someone would be a Republican or a Democrat, a progressive or a conservative, yeah. was the population density of the place they lived. Yeah. You know, and if you think about it, it makes a certain sense, because if you actually believe people working together can solve problems, then you'd be more inclined to want to have neighbors nearby and maybe have a coffee shop or a tavern where people could gather. And if you really thought that the solution to problems was just simply building walls and separating people and, you know, keeping the bad guys away, then, you know, then of course the, the exurban or rural life would, um, would have more appeal. And yeah. I just, I found that just fascinating that yeah. that's the case. And I'm, I'm a little bit of a political junkie. So I, uh, the New York times about a month ago or a month and a half ago did a precinct by precinct map. Oh, I saw this. Of the yeah, 2016 yeah. presidential election. And it's really interesting because even in these red, red counties, oftentimes the the county seat, you know, would be blue, Hmm. you know, or at least the inner parts of, you know, the inner precincts of the county seat, (laughs) you know. And so places, you know, and so it just, you know, it really confirmed the Pew Charitable Trust notion that just, you know, when people live closer together, they just have a different, kind of a different worldview, but certainly a different political view. Yeah. And, I mean, and the I, worldview probably precedes the political view, but right, and and you know, there's there's a part of, I mean, it, it's almost hard to imagine. I, I mean, going to places like the small town in Iowa when I was when I was a kid, 
there wasn't much for diversity. I think they had yeah. like an, there was an Indian doctor in the town. That was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And yeah. everybody, everybody liked him because there was only one. Yeah. It's like, it's comfortable <laughs> for me right now. But, you know, there, there was, uh, there was this, you know, sort of sense that the world was changing too. Yeah. And that was, that was hard for, I think a lot of the, a lot of the older population and, yeah. and, you know, for even in, even in my experience, and I grew up in a somewhat diverse neighborhood here, going to New York was definitely a huge change yeah. for me. And and yet once it becomes the norm and you put yourself back in a situation where the, the, you are, you know, just in a, in a you know, a train or a bus or, you know, crowded place full of just white people, it feels a little uncomfortable. It's kind of funny how you can yeah. kind of reverse yeah. the way that you that you see things because. I'm, I'm always, I mean, maybe it's just my personality, but there's something for me in a, in a, in a diverse group of yeah. people, even, even, even diverse ages. Like I just find, I, I'm sort of drawn to people for one reason or another, because I think there's something unique about them. And I kind of want to find a way to have a conversation no, a- with them. Absolutely. And I, yeah, it is, it is, uh, although, you know, it's funny cause my, I was born in Iowa and my parents tell these really interesting stories. My dad was a coach, so. They lived in a lot of different small towns. And, and my dad would say, you know, there'd be one small town, you know, that um, was, you know, where everybody was Polish Catholic. And then the next small town, and then three quarters of a mile away, there was a small town that was most, mostly Quakers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so you think those two towns got along? Not at all. Oh, I mean, no, the Polish Catholics, you know. <laughs> Made noise and drank, and you know, <laughs> even where where in Iowa, where where my yeah. grandparents were, it was the, there were the Polish Catholics and the Irish German Catholics. It seemed yeah. was yeah, a exactly. mix, and, and they, yeah, so. they, they had they had problems with each other. It was just I don't know if they really had problems, but yeah. they certainly had plenty of jokes about each other. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think really just to kind of get off the topic a little bit. I mean, I just think that the emergence of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and things like that. You know, there's always a little bit of fear of the other. Yeah, and just completely cranked it up to you know to volume eleven, um, and I think that's what we saw. What's well, what we've seen in recent you know in the election and and the whole the whole Trump phenomenon. Yeah, and and it is going to draw in the the opposite reaction. It's not it's not quite the same fear based tactics. Yeah, but you certainly have like two ends of a spectrum that are you know, sort of yelling as loud as they can yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> over the over the masses. I mean, there's a natural suspicion that people have for people right. that are different, but then there's a way that that just becomes fed upon and made toxic. And right. you know, I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And this, you know, this all affects people's health, you know, because when you're a pariah group, you know, when you're kind of looked down upon and cast aside and, you know, attacked, you know, that has a lot to do with your kind of disposition and, uh, what you see your sense of possibilities are in the world. Yeah. And and that's what's become most interesting in, to, to me as, as a health practitioner, you know, I started the reason that I kind of pushed into starting to do this podcast wasn't just me wanting to talk about, you know, healthcare and more health related issues because no. I felt like the, the issues I was seeing in my practice, I, I just felt like things were starting to shift into a place where this is not necessarily uh, an internal medicine issue or orthopedic yeah. issue, I, I, I started feeling like there's there's a lot more going on here. That's like, it's almost kind of like a community based health issue, yeah. you know. And it's it's mental, emotional stuff going on, and you know how how do we start addressing or or talking about this stuff? Yeah, 
And, you know, I did start the podcast in, in the fall of 2016. <laughs> 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 must have been, must have been t- tied yeah, in yeah, with tapped but... into something, yeah. <laughs> well, I've been doing some work with something called the Wellbeing Trust, um, which is uh, based in Oakland and in Seattle. And it's a foundation that was created. There was a group of Catholic nuns that, um, two groups of Catholic nuns that both had hospital systems, and they merged. And so I think one of the nuns got paid out, and they you know got an awful lot of money, and they founded this trust to really, you know, get at you know what are the deeper psychological and spiritual and physical yeah. you know yeah. illness in our society, and how, and how you create health in all those realms. Yeah. And it's really interesting because they have a focus on, um, you know, improving clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't pay attention to the social factors and the psychological factors, it doesn't matter how much you improve clinical medicine because there'll just be more and more people. Yeah. And they're really focused on what are called the deaths, deaths of despair, which I think have been over in the last 10 years, a million people have died from suicide um, from drug abuse, you know, opioids a lot, yeah. and alcoholism, you know, or, or, and uh, and so those deaths, I mean, you know, that's kind of unprecedented in our yeah. history, and uh, they're all increasing at an incredible level. If current trends continue, it'll be two million deaths over the, yeah. the next ten years. Yeah. And so, what do you do about that? I mean, obviously, um, you know, and, and a lot of the chronic disease is preventable if people would stop smoking, would have better diets, would get more exercise, but people don't. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can scold them, which has not proven to be very effective. <laughs> yeah. And so you just really need to kind of understand what are the currents that make people so hopeless and that make people, you know, a little self-destructive at times. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the crux of American healthcare right now. I mean, we can cure cancer, but these chronic diseases are still going to be with us. And, um, and, and, and the thing is like, what's, what's behind that chronic disease or what's behind the smoking and the yeah. alcoholism and all those things yeah. seem to me there's a, there's a, there's a Brene Brown had something in her recent book about how you could tie just about all of the, the, the sort of big chronic diseases to loneliness on some level yeah. or that, that, that act actually seemed to be the, the biggest factor in, you know the the that sort of you know biggest number of of deaths in the in the health yeah. system and that's i'm so glad you you brought that up because uh, vivek murthy you know who was the the uh, surgeon general under obama yeah. you know and as a hero to many people just because of he was just such a incredibly empathetic guy yeah and you know the son of indian immigrants you know grew up relatively poor in miami mm-hmm. And um, he made a big deal. He did the big, you know, the call to action about walking. But the focus of his work since leaving office has been about the loneliness epidemic in America. Is that right? Yeah. And it's really interesting because the data is there. You know, we all know that walking is good for you and healthy eating is good for you and and, uh, paying attention to vital science is good for you. But, you know, as much as anything else, social connection is one of the best things you can do for your immune system, one of the best things yeah. you can do to stay healthy. And, you know, and it's almost like that should, people should be being, they should be, go to the doctor and be prescribed, walk 20 minutes a day, yeah. but also spend at least two hours of time with people. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because the assumption is, you know, I, mean, I think it's more like six hours is what's the magic number there. Is that right? Yeah, but what's interesting, you kind of presume, oh, that means deep conversation with your friends or, you know, really 
family time together. But actually, some of the research is showing it's just simply being in a park with other people, being in a coffee shop with other yeah. people. It's that that kind of proximity that dent you know that comes from dense. You, you dense, are a part of a community. community. Yes, I, exactly. You really have that sense. Yeah, yeah, and you and you don't. It's been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, despite. Facebook putting in millions of dollars to try to prove that, that that a social media network does not confer the same health benefits. They were yeah. really hoping that, yeah. <laughs> that it would, but it doesn't. You know, and it just there seems to be, I don't know. You know, you can, you know, humans are animals in a way. Yeah, you know, in a good way as well as a bad way. And um, so I think you can really learn about a lot about our basic nature by watching kids, yeah. little kids. Yeah. And little kids just, you know, I live close to this really wonderful park here. And the kids in the park are so happy and they're running and they just like to look up at everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think we are all just wired for connecting with people yeah. that way. Yeah. And that's the way we talked about the fear of the other. Yeah. And the suspicion of people that, you know, don't have the same skin tone or don't have the same language or don't have the same customs. Well, how are you going to familiarize? How are people going to get familiar with one another? And it's a two-way street. Yeah. Well, people meeting in public spaces. Because that takes the, oh, you know, oh, those criminal Mexicans or, oh, those, you know, stiff, cold white people. Yeah. And, you know, if you're in a park and your kids are playing together and you see, oh, no, they're having that for their picnic and we're having this. I mean, that kind of stuff just breaks down those walls. Yeah. And plus, it's like, you know, it's like having a fabulous immune boost. It's, it's like vitamin C times 300,000. Right. <laughs> and I, I've, I've, uh, I've read that it's right around the age of seven that that whole worldview starts to shift. You mm-hmm. know, At, before that, a lot of those fear-based um, preventative things <laughs> that, that keep yeah. us from, from sort of, you know, connecting with younger, older, different, yeah. different cultures are, are just gone. So, you know, that's that's one of those things that we should probably, you know, pay some attention to in our education system that yeah. if we're going to integrate, that's probably the, the time period to actually start working on, on that within our school systems. Because what happens a lot of times instead is it happens in high schools. Yeah. And, you know, my son's high school is having some problems right now, partly, you know, and, and there are some race issues going on. But I think part of it is because they're coming from a different place yeah. in high school. It just it becomes yeah. a little bit too difficult for, for certain kids. And I think they're still, I think even middle schoolers are still a little bit more open. But by high school, it's, it becomes a yeah, much more Yeah, people kind of dug in. And that's the age where you most, you know, belonging to, you know, a gang is, you know, in the broadest sense. Right, yeah, yeah. It's just basic to teenagers and just, and also they don't want to do anything that's uncool. You know what I mean? So yeah. it, it, in, a, in a way, teenagers are some of the most conservative people in the world in terms of just <laughs> True. wanting to really, you know, just, you know, live by the, you know, the dictates of their particular, you know, their cohort. <laughs> Going back into your career a little bit, yeah, you you started you start writing right out of right out of University of Iowa. Yes, I did. I uh, I actually came up here to go to graduate school in and uh, Minneapolis, and we uh, and just got what, really what involved. What school was it? Pardon? What, what school? I was in journalism grad school here. Okay, okay. You know, and uh, wrote a lot about music in those days. Oh which yeah, seems a little far afield. From what I do now, yet I think it's a lot the same. I mean, because music is just it's a way that people come together. It's, a, it's, it's an expression of people. And, and I just, what I really love, I mean, I have all sorts of 
important social missions and goals. But, you know, what's really fun for me as a writer is telling people stories. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. I, you know, musicians have such interesting stories to tell. And, you know, and and they sing stories, too. Yeah. And so I did that. But um, then wound up, worked for a while in Better Homes and Gardens magazine as a travel editor. Mm. Uh, worked for a political, kind of a progressive political magazine in Chicago. And I wound up here at a place called Utney Reader. Yeah, yeah. You were, and, the, you were the editor for a yeah, while, for right? quite a while. Yeah. yeah, for about 15 years. And Other Reader was a Reader's Digest from a more progressive point of view. And Because you, you talked about everything from like politics to culture to wellness to yes, science. Yes. I love that job because there was spiritual. really nothing that was out of bounds yeah, as a subject matter. It was, it was yeah. great. I mean, it's still, it's still yeah. around though, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's still around. still being yeah. published. I, yeah. they, still, they run quite a few of my articles still. Oh, cool. But wellness was a big theme yeah. of, the, of the magazine. And it seemed like community was too. The community was too. And so those are the two. When I left the magazine after a good long run, um, those were the things I was most interested in just kind of exploring. And then the, the connections between the two of them. And, you know, it's funny. I've always been, ever since I was a little kid, I've just been a person, a wanderer. I just love to see new places, just to kind of look around. It's kind of my meditation, it's my yeah. yoga a little yeah. bit, and my mental yoga. And um, so I always just loved, you know, and it didn't have to be some glamorous place. I mean, just here's yeah. a, here's a, you know, um, my your, your first trip to Omaha or your first trip to, you know, uh, Mason City, Iowa or something. Yeah. I just kind of what makes this community tick. I'm, I'm about the same with all that stuff. And it's funny about about music, too, because I was a musician in my yeah. most of my 20s, you know, like, you know, touring and playing around yeah. and stuff. But. I think it started with me being in the crowd. You know, I, yeah. I, I used to, I had a radio show in college and we used to get free tickets to go see whatever was happening at first Avenue or fine line and some mm-hmm. stuff downtown. And I think I got just as much out of just being in the crowd, seeing like just being sort of smashed together and seeing yeah, who these people yeah. were face to face or sort of having a bird's eye view and just yeah. looking at the crowd as much as I liked watching the music that, that, and Oh, the, sure. Yeah. That, that part of, you know, music for me yeah. has always been huge. I think that's, that's, I don't think anything I've done hasn't been a little bit about having this community around it. Yeah. No, me too. And, uh, so just, that's when I just started exploring and I, I became more serious about that. You know, it's funny. I did this book called The Great Neighborhood Book with Project for Public Spaces. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, writing books always just is way more work than you ever thought it was going to be. And, and I was on a really short deadline for that book. And I, and I, and I just thought, how in the world am I going to write this book? And then I started just thinking about all the stuff I had learned just kind of, I thought, goofing off. <laughs> wandering around the streets of some city kind of going, hmm, that's interesting, or wonder yeah. why they do it this way. And I realized I'd only been researching the book for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the writing part I knew I could do really well, but I was thinking, God, we're really, we're really shaky on the research here. And in fact, and, and just all those stories kind of came back to me. So, so I met the deadline, and, and uh, the book's still in print, so people seem to like it. I, I, got, I, got, I think I got a piece of that, or you know, because Kathy who connected us yeah, or, yeah. um had shared with some shared with me i think maybe when you came to brooklyn one time we tried meeting up for yeah, dinner or yeah. something but i i started reading some of some of that i didn't realize there was an entire book with it though oh yeah yeah no i mean it was it was uh and uh it was fun you know and and kathy kathy madden of, of project for public spaces you know she's very interesting she grew up in minnesota yeah and she's just kind of a fearless person i mean they yeah. had a 
a gig one time, you know, Bryant Square Park, which is right behind the New York Public Library. Was, yeah. you know, it was Needle Park, they called it. You know, it's because where mm-hmm. everybody went to buy drugs. And um, so they were supposed to research what they could do to, um, you know, make it a place where everybody felt comfortable. And yeah. so, so Kathy just barged right in. And it started interviewing the drug dealers <laughs> is that about right? why why is this a good place to sell drugs? And they go, oh yeah, it's a great place because you can't see what's on the other side of the hedge and stuff like that. And so you know, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I, she grew up in a hotel. Yeah. So she just always is, you know. <laughs> I mean, literally, you know, her family's famous for yeah. Madden's Resort, right? But, you right. Know, the family business yeah. really before the resort was this hotel in downtown Little Falls. Yeah. And so she just grew up with people around all the time. And so that's, you know, she has amazing people skills that way. Yeah. And, and, and I've had some conversations with her husband, Fred, too, about, you know, just the way that you kind of, and, and I feel, I feel like that you're such a great match for having met them because yeah. he's talked to me a little bit about like, you know, specific places that they find in these and, and, and yeah. basically why and just looking at why do people tend to congregate in this space yeah or you know sometimes you're talking about some place where there was like a a little someone had made this like little bench around a tree yeah and for some reason it was the most popular place for people to go sit they would kind of all sit with their backs to each other right because yeah. you're, you're sitting with your back to the tree but it's sort of like you were talking about earlier there's something about just being next to this person we don't have to have a conversation but it's comfortable like we're yeah we're in yeah. this space we're all kind of looking out at what's happening here no, I think there's some really rules of, you know, or, or guidelines on how to make places popular. And it seems like we've just, like a lot of things, just forgotten that. Yeah. There's a, a, one of the great mentors to, to Fred Kenton, Kathy Madden, was a guy by the name of William H. White. And um, he said, it's really impossible to create, it's really difficult to create a place that people don't want to go. What's really amazing is how often we do it. You know, because the concern isn't about creating a great place for people to gather. The concern is police enforcement or what can we do? You know, how can we maximize sales or all these kinds of things? And so, you know, just giving people a great place is usually way down the list of the priorities. And, you know, and a lot of the design world today, too, is about making sort of a sculptural statement with all the elements. And and so they're not, you know, they're just. We just have kind of, I think, forgotten that that deep human instinct about creating places that, you know, where people want to go. And I think, you know, that's what placemaking is all about. Right, right. And placemaking is really tied in with, with community health and with personal health and things like that. And I think we're, we're kind of rediscovering those things. And we're rediscovering it from, you know, people in the developing world, from people in poor neighborhoods, from, you know, the, you know why does a certain vacant lot in in some lower income neighborhood, you know, just flourish with people, and why do other ones, you know, and then why does some planned park you go through it and there's no one there at all? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, just simply because there's just there is there is some basic uh, principles on creating places people want to go, and people just ignore that. What, what did you What did you learn from the project for public spaces, you know, book that you worked on? I mean, if, as far there's, as as far were... as place making, are there any like really hard Rules that people yeah. should just be aware of. Well, I always joke, and you know, it's, it's not funny now because as we speak, Hurricane Florence is bearing down on the East Coast. But yeah. I always, you know, depending, I do a lot of speaking, you know, so I always depending depending on where I'm at, I go, okay, if we just got news that there was a hurricane or a tornado or an earthquake or a wildfire coming our way, and I could just leave you with two uh-huh. ideas on how to make a great place, they are 
give people a place to hang out together and give people a place to walk together. I mean, those are the, that, that's the core. That's the foundation mm. of making a great place. Yeah. And then beyond that, um, just a lot of things that, you know, uh, places should be able to be flexible. You know, a place like, you know, some of the deadest places um, in any city are the tennis courts and the baseball fields. <laughs> Because it's this huge amount of space yeah. given over to an activity that people only spend so much time doing. Yeah. You know, so if you can, the whole notion of mixed use is popular in kind of the planning profession now. But just all of our spaces should be mixed use. You know, you can use it for something different in the winter than in the summer. Mm-hmm. Use it for something different in the evening than during the day. You know, use it, you know, when the kids get off of school in the afternoon, it does one thing. But when places serve a lot of functions. Right. That, you know, and, and so just, and, you know, I think so much of suburban development, there's nothing inherently wrong with suburbs or with suburban yeah. people. But the problem with suburban development as practiced since, you know, 1950 or so has just been everything just has one single use. Uh, this is yeah. where you go shop. Yeah. This is where you go play sports. This is where you go to school. This is where you go buy things, which is like a lot like shopping, I guess. You know, this is where you go to work. This is where you live. And when all those things are separate, it's just, there's just a lot of emptiness. There's yeah. just a lot of uh, separation between people. And you put all those things together. And that's, that's why people love Brooklyn. That's why people love yeah. being around the lakes in Minneapolis. That's why people love any great place. That's why people love the state fair. That's why people love theme parks. Yeah. Um, just because you have, there's all this energy going on and you have choices. Yeah. There's, there's something about being sort of smashed together in a place. Like, yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I, I haven't lived in New York for, for five years, but I go back and, and do work and do trips there and I go to the same, I stay in the same yeah, neighborhood yeah. roughly. And because I've, you know, known people, residents in this neighborhood for almost 20 years now, they don't even know that I haven't left. <laughs> I mean, they, it, to, to them, I'm still, I still, yeah, exactly. I, I'm still a neighborhood guy. Which yeah. Is, which oh, is, that is great. Which is funny, but there are a lot of people that had I not been sort of put in proximity with and gotten to know over such a long period of time, yeah. that there's no way that I would have ever become friendly with them in a place where yeah. there is so much separation of of, of use. Yeah. At, at Project Republic Public Spaces, we used to really say that you know that. Public spaces are the fundamental common ground. You know, everybody's, where's the common ground in America? Well, literal common ground are the places where people cross paths. Uh, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, and that's why gentrification is such a baneful thing in our lives because that means that, you know, the people that you'll run into in your neighborhood or on your street are all going to be just like you, you know, yeah. at least in terms of income. And and so it's really where people can come together, where they can meet each other as friends and neighbors and and uh, citizens. You know, that's the that's the crux of democracy. I mean, that's what's really well, that's what's really needed right now. I, I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of care that gets taken too of each other in yeah. those situations. You know, we we think that I don't know that that economically. It's it, it should be it's it's more comfortable if you if you're you know in the same sort of tier of of you know people, but there's there's something there's there is this need to to take care of someone as well. I think yeah, that, that yeah. It, it almost doesn't get it's like a muscle that doesn't get worked often enough for people, and so they don't they're uncomfortable with that. But it's so easy when you when you have yeah. the opportunity. And like you know the thing with New York is that a lot of people think that New Yorkers are rude and. 
you know, I mean, they, they are if you're in, in Times Square. <laughs> if you get outside of there and anything goes on, I've been in so many situations where I've, I've watched someone just like rise up to take care of somebody else yeah. for no reason. Or if, or, you know, even if you're just, if, if you're clearly like lost or you, you, know, you ask somebody for help, they'll go way out of their way no. to, to make sure that, you know, you, you get to where I've had going. the very same experience. I've spent a lot of time just wandering around New York and it's, you know, there's a little bit of a, gruff uh you know because you're, you're you're meeting so many people every minute in new york that you, you put up a little like it's like a little yeah. plexiglass yeah but the minute you know I, I can't tell you how many pull out a map sometime in new york yeah you know or pull up the map on your phone even and three or four people will say can i help you where are you trying to go you know you know it's like you're in their town yeah and they have a certain pride in their mastery of it, and they want to help you. I mean, so I find New Yorkers and be, they've been there. Like yeah. anybody, almost everybody who's there is from somewhere else. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So there's something about like anyone with distress where you're like, I hate to see someone go through. No, this. No, exactly. Yeah, and it, it is. Uh, no, it's remarkable because I mean, I think you know, I mean, a little bit. One of the places we're at at this particular historical moment is you ultimately believe that people are good that care for each other or that people are kind of driven by um, just selfishness, you know. And I think the one of the political ideologies, uh, you know, prevailing today is, you know, is fear, is that, you know, everybody's going to screw you, everybody's going to take advantage of you and all that. And if you live your life that way, you'll probably live a shorter life, yeah. you know. And if you really do, you know, and yeah, sometimes you're going to get burned in life and sometimes you're going to, you know, someone's going to take advantage of you, but is, is is that the worst possible thing in the world? You're right. you know, you're going to enjoy your life a lot more if you just kind of believe the best in people, and mostly you're going to be rewarded for that. Yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's a, kind of philosophical. A, I know, but well, no, but I I think that's I, it's. I feel like it's a theme that I keep kind of bumping into with people yeah. when I have these conversations. Is is I think I, I think if we, the other part of it is that if if we're told that we're not good people in some yeah. ways, you know, I feel like there's 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 always something out there sort of trying to say that you know, this, sort of this us versus them thing, like you're a bad person. I mean, it's the thing I, I really yeah. have a hard time with with even with the you know being people being lumped into these groups of liberals or Trumpers or whatever is that it's 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 so generalized yeah. and 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 there's so many people. I I just think the, the the general population is actually are, are really good people, and if and if they're sort of, you know, expected to be that way, and if they're sort of, you know, if if you if you say that they're good, they're going to be better than if you if you say that they're bad. No, exactly, exactly. You probably have run across the work of Blue Zones, yeah. And you know, one of their chief uh, guiding principles is make the healthy choice the easy choice. Hmm. You know, and that's a little bit the same. You know, invest in people. Yeah, and believe that they're going to do better, and they will do better. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I, I keep thinking, you know, we're in Minneapolis. You know, of course, where the miss, the bridge, you know, collapsed over the Mississippi yeah, River. Yeah, and there was a school bus that was sort of teetering, you know, and the guy, the motorist who stopped and shepherded all these kids out of that was an undocumented Latino immigrant. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so where does that fit in with the popular conception of these criminals coming up from the south of the border to, you know, to take away everything we have? Yeah. I mean, you know, ridiculous, balderdash. Yeah. And, and, and and I wonder how much that is actually popular. Like, I, I wonder I yeah. wonder if these aren't just sort of like, 
you know, political devices that are that are being thrown around. Or oh no, I think it's a really calculated campaign yeah. to you know to divide us. Yeah, and then you know, and then you know, so other so the people that are in charge can stay in charge. Yeah, you know, one of the things that my all my work about community and about physical activity and about public spaces brought me to the idea of the commons. Mm. Um, and the commons are all those things that we own together. And you kind of think, well, yeah, but that's not much, is it? But if you think about it, the streets are a commons, the parks are a commons, right. schools are a commons, you know, all public government services are a commons. Even in a way, things that we don't own are still sort of ours, like our favorite neighborhood coffee shop. Yeah. And, you know, the Internet's a commons and, you know, the sky and the air and the environment. There's really a lot of things. We depend much more for our survival and our happiness on things that belong to all of us as opposed to the things that we just happen to own privately. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I'd, you know, I'd give up my house and uh, my clothing before I'd give up <laughs> the oxygen in the atmosphere. Right. <laughs> and I think, I think if, we, if we were, you know allowed to pay attention to this more yeah. in some way that that we would that we would come together yeah. for for these different causes when we yeah. when we realize that like this this is this is our commons yeah and what's interesting in, in i did a book about the commons called all that we share a field guide to the commons and i did you know quite a lot of research on you know looking historically at the commons and and um one of the most interesting um sort of research areas that I didn't know that much about. You know, we, we've been told there's the selfish gene. Right, yeah, And yeah. that evolution is based upon this, you know, the, the survival of the fittest and all things like that. But there's just as much evidence, probably more evidence, that actually, you know, human evolution and human survival has been based upon cooperation. Yeah, there certainly are, you know, there is a certain selfishness that's that's a part of our makeup, but, you know, but we tend to be a lot more cooperative than we are selfish. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a gene that's like the fear of loneliness gene that's yeah. even more powerful than the selfish Yeah, exactly. Gene. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, the new realms of science, you know, there's some fascinating things in there. And sometimes it's just, you know, a certain, a certain uh, idea that happens to sort of fit the prevailing worldview yeah. gets all this attention. But there's a lot of things that just fly completely in the face of that. Yeah, I, I I get very sort of taken in by the, the sort of Malcolm Gladwell type writings, you know, sometimes yeah, yeah. where it's like it's so convincing, you know, and I, yeah. because I'm a bit of a science junkie, like yeah. I'll, I will read these things, to, you know, one the next new thing that comes out, and I can be very sort of convinced for some period of time, but I feel like just being in being in the space of the writing and and processing it, then I start to see it everywhere, but I almost always find you know the counter to the example and that it seems to be like a, a a big thing there was this you know the the one that he had not too long ago um about he he was talking about school i had a, a child at the time that he was talking about school age children being pushed forward into school and and that was that that that's going to cause problems for this child because they're going to be smaller and their their intelligence at you know even six months back yeah, is yeah. is so different that it can start to affect their you know their their ability to have you know sort of confidence in the, in what they're doing. But and I have a child who was going through exactly this. He was he's at a late August birthday. We oh yeah, yeah. Trying to figure out whether to push him into the next school year or hold him yeah. back, and very smart in certain ways and behind in other ways. 
And, you know, we ended up, you know, deciding that he, because he was tall and because he was so advanced in some things that to hold him back seemed, seemed like it, it, yeah. it would be worse for him. And yet this book, I was totally sold that we should have waited another year. Oh, really? Yeah. And, yeah. and yet I think a lot of what he's gotten confidence wise has come from overcoming some of those obstacles. So okay, yeah. that wasn't part yeah. of, that wasn't anywhere, you know, touched in the book. So, yeah, I think one of the things in that book is, you know, it's like the, there's like four months that are preponderance of national hockey league players were born mm-hmm, in. Mm-hmm. And there's just sort of something about whatever, you know, for some reason, yeah. you know, they were the biggest kids on the ice or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, there's a whole notion, um, you know, that's, that's often treated like gospel truth in our society. The notion of homo economist, which is that, you know, that and most economists believe people do this. You know that they basically make all their decisions just kind of based upon self-interest. You know, and and, and with the homo economist argument is that you should, by all means you should put your child into school as soon as possible because they'll have more years earning in the market. <laughs> and yet, you know that you know, that sort of seems ridiculous. But I mean, but you know that kind of reasoning is affecting a lot of things in our culture. It's just, you know, what, you know, what maximizes profit, what maximizes wealth and not paying any attention to the, to the wreckage that's left behind by that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but the, the whole notion that we're, you know, as a species, we're driven by just simply economic betterment, you know, it doesn't, it's just, it's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. As a journalist, I mean, one of the things that's always been one of my, my kind of nose for news is I try to look at things that I see in my life around me, in my neighborhood, my community, my group of friends, my family that don't tend to get written about or talked about in the broader media. Mm-hmm. And I go, that's really interesting to me, you know, that, you know, such things don't really exist if you just believe what you, you know, see on Netflix and what you see, you know, on your favorite website sources and things like that. And I kind of go, because I think there's just, you know, the media is not an accurate assessment of the world around us. Right. Um, and, and particularly the larger the media, the less that's true. And there's just, there's an awful lot they miss because of their own sort of, uh, perceptions and biases. And so I'm always self-interested. Yeah. You know, I think there's, there's, we, we, we long to be entertained on some level yeah. and, and they know that they can make yeah. money off of that. And whether it's a news or a book or, yeah. a, you know, show or whatever, they, they, they know they're tapping that to some extent and, you yeah. know, trying, trying to hit there. There's this probably a cross between or whatever the, where the paths cross between what's happening culturally and, you know, and, yeah. and that, that plays into like all the, the fears and all, you know, all, all the excitements or whatever yeah. that are going on. So they, they, they find those moments to really capitalize on some of that stuff. And yet yeah. at the same time, there's, there's plenty that can come out of that. That's yeah. very thought provoking, but it's not necessarily real, but no, you know, no, exactly. you know, I feel like you, you like to kind yeah. of get in, get down at the street level and <laughs> with it, with everything no. I've read that you've done. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. One of the things you asked me a couple of minutes ago is, you know, what I learned um, doing the book, the Great Neighborhood book with uh, Project for Public Spaces. And one of the, it's just, this is one of the big Project for Public Spaces lessons, but uh, this was just driven home over and over in the book. 
is that the community is the expert. You know, in your yeah. particular, because we, you know, we live in kind of an expert culture now. And, uh, you know, so the urban planner is going to tell you what's best for your neighborhood or the economic planner is going to tell you why the Walmart is going to be so much better for you, even though that, you know, your all year local stores are going to close their doors. Um, but really, the world's leading authority on a particular neighborhood are the people who live there. Yeah. Not someone who has studied neighborhoods all over the world and da 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 da. Right. You know, and so you know, a little bit of humility. Yeah, it's it's true. It's it's in my field. This is one one of the things. This one of the things that actually led to the podcast a little bit was I was working with a doctor who was who was really trying to solve some of the more relationship related communications issues around around healthcare. And one of the one of the things that I think we don't do very well in healthcare is ask people more questions about themselves they're actually the experts about yeah, themselves yeah. and you know it's the the doctors if they get enough information are experts but if they're not asking for the information they're not getting the right yeah. they're not getting the right details so how no, do you, where, that, where do you start then and there's kind of a movement you probably know about this but to expand what are seen as the vital signs Mm. You know, because, you know, you're asked about your smoking, you know, you're sometimes shamed about your smoking or you're, you're asked about, you know, here's your blood pressure and things like that. But no one's asking you, how much exercise do you get a day? Or, you know, how much, you know, how many, how much time do you spend with friends? Yeah. What are your relationships? Because, you know, like? those questions, you remember those questions because you're being asked by a medical authority. Yeah. And so if they asked you, you know... um, how much do you volunteer in the community? That would that would make a difference to you. I mean, some of it is just taking taking those moments. And the well-being trust that I've been doing some work with, they're doing Yeah, what tell me about that? Well, they're, you know, trying to really sort of bring a, you know, for I mean, this is big thinking, but kind of a new paradigm to health. Um and they talk about there's the vital signs, but also the vital conditions. You know, that these things have to be present for people to be healthy, and that's, you know, shelter, a sense of safety, mm. opportunities for education and lifelong learning, mm. opportunities to be able to be more physically active, you know, opportunities to eat good, healthy food. Those things, you know, yeah. are just as important to our health. And um, the University of Wisconsin Population Institute, which is kind of one of the leading, you know, sort of sources on health, um, health de- demographics and data, um, last summer just came out with a, I thought rather striking conclusion. They said that 20% of people's health is uh, attributable to clinical, um, you know, cl- clinical medicine. And 80% of it <laughs> depends upon, you know, personal habits, the kind of community they live in, you know, not even access to healthcare, but just, you know, the whole, the whole context of, of life. And that, you know, that's a pretty, you know, because, you know, let's face it. I mean, healthcare is, is closing in on 20% of our GDP. Yeah and growing you know that is not the sign of a healthy culture (laughs) no no and um you know and i think we need and the solution just isn't isn't going to be what happens in the doctor's office the solution has to be what happens everywhere else yeah you know and even if you're a fiscal conservative and you hate um government spending well there's a place to start how do you make people more healthy yeah um i mean i think the the problem you know there there is I, i i do think some that whatever how many trillion four or five trillion dollars or whatever that 20 percent gdp is yeah 
it's it's supporting the economy on some level and so yeah. you know people really like when that number gets kind of pushed yeah but what it's not sustainable that's the no. problem you know what's what's happening with people exactly what you're saying yeah. there's it's it's going to get to a point where and and we are we're creature we're, we're behavioral creatures of of habit so the way that you know the way that we sort of pattern our lives in and the way that patterns in culturally that's that other 80 percent yeah. for the most part yeah. and i feel like that's the that's the real challenge here is how do you how do you do behavior change you know yeah. you're, you're trying to modify and, and even little shifts are going to make a huge difference in people's health that's the one thing that i've you know sort of worked on my whole career is like just those little things it, it's sort of what was the thing that you said earlier with the blue zones uh you know, oh yeah, make the healthy choice the easy choice. The easy choice, you the know? obvious so choice. I, the, really. Yeah, I find I just find whatever that first easy choice is. Like, how yeah. do you how do you get started down in a new path? It's usually that one easy choice, the one yeah. thing that you can do. Like, it's why I, I love your writing about walking because it's it's the one easy choice. I almost always start there with people. Yeah, and and it's and it's one of those things that can be done anywhere, and you know, adding other pieces into that, like cycling or you know something yeah. else that also is it's it's and there's a there's a cost effective aspect of all this stuff too oh there's just so many little things that can add up you know think about it. if you go to a shopping mall you actually probably wind up walking quite a bit from the distant parking lot to the store that's on the farther side so if you don't shop at shopping malls why not park three blocks <laughs> right. from your destination i mean you, you'll get some exercise that yeah. way you know um it's really amazing. It just it kind of it all adds up, and you know, and, and a lot of the things, you know, historically people didn't work out, right? They gardened and they did housework and they walked places, and it wasn't like oh, I'm exercising now, I'm being so virtuous. It was yeah. more just simply that was just the natural part of their life. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that I think that's true with all kinds of things in terms of just you know, sugar was something that was sort of a scarce commodity. You yeah. know, there wasn't a lot of honey created and sugar cane came from far away and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, so it wasn't just, we didn't just constantly get fed sugar, 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 sugar. I mean, yeah. sugar's in its own way is a wonderful thing. <laughs> right, right. But it's just simply when it becomes kind of de facto, default, really, just yeah. like, okay, you know, and there's, you know, sweetener added to this and sweetener added to that. And just, you know, there's a, and, you know, so, and it really is, we need big political changes and economic changes in the world, but also just simply fundamentally, you know, how people, you know, the small decisions in their life all add up. Yeah. I mean, so that's what I, I love to kind of draw attention on what people can do, which yeah. isn't to say that we don't also need to make right. huge differences. In other, you know, it's, it's not an either or, yeah. you know, it's like the, you have to stop the bleeding and at the same time change people's consciousness so yeah. both you, are important you, you need to keep your, your your awareness and attention to what's going on but you shouldn't do that at the sacrifice of your own health and yeah. actually you know making those small changes for yourself yeah. right now i think this is one of the things that i've gotten from a lot of health professionals is they get very frustrated in their jobs that people just seem disengaged from the the care of their own bodies yeah you yeah know? and their uh, and their minds and yeah. you know their emotional you know state and everything too it's like and that gets to be kind of philosophical i mean we yeah. you know the you know modernity's metaphor is that everything is like a machine you know or maybe now we say it's about you know it's like a internet or something like that you know yeah. but it's um 
so if you view if you view that way then you know then it's not food it's fuel you know and and even sometimes our health consciousness takes that attitude too right if i just run three miles a day or something like that and it's just that just to we're missing so much and we're kind of just narrowing things down everything becomes mechanistic yeah exactly you know and if your metaphor is the world is a living thing then you make kind of different 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 choices yeah and that that is the one thing that i find we we miss out on in, in certain i mean minneapolis is a I, I really think is a great blend where you have nature at your disposal you can be yeah. reminded that you that you live on 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 in, in dirt yeah yeah <laughs> and exactly. with trees around you and with water yeah. but you know some places like new york it's just a yeah. it's just a sidewalk on top of an island you don't know you, you don't even know where you are <laughs> in the universe yeah. i mean <laughs> so, I, I love big cities but i would really miss the crickets yeah yeah <laughs> and and but but i think i think there's something there's something vital about that for us yeah. being creatures of flesh you know yeah. and, and what we actually need from from the planet yeah. and you know it, to, to really be tapped into that on a regular basis otherwise it's part, i think that's also part of the reason that we treat each other this way that mm-hmm. maybe we treat each other sort of mechanically because no exactly part, yeah, what, 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 what can this person do for me yeah you know it's interesting because i really do believe that um science is on our side too and i don't mean just the science about proving climate change but there is a fascinating article in the it was a couple. It was a while back in the New York Times Magazine, just saying that you know, really, the human body should be thought of less as an organism and more as an ecosystem, right? Because you know, we have all the flora in our gut. Mm-hmm. You know, that without it, you know, we would die. You know, our immune system, you know, is not a is not like a boiler. Our immune system is like a living thing. Yeah. You know, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it just—it's there and very complex. And we should think about our communities the same way. Exactly. Yeah. That you know, yeah. we, we 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 even though we may not see, you know, our neighbor across the street all the time, there are certain things. Yeah. There's, there's a there, there's there's a support there, whether yeah. we're actually interacting or not. No, the ecosystem model, I think, really is 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 kind of the basic building block of the universe you know not the you know not the molecular structure but it's the whole ecosystem <laughs> yeah you know and, and the thrust of modernity has often been to kind of look at things in ever smaller you know isolate ever smaller parts of things but you know the connectedness of things is you know it's remark and there's a remarkable scientific research about that you know i just uh, the book came out about a year ago but there was this this german forester wrote a book about trees and he did not do any new basic research. This is all stuff that people knew, but that most people didn't know. Either, you know, that experts knew. But, you know, trees communicate with one another. Um, there are stumps that have been around for 500 years because the trees are all connected. I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the trees are all connected through these fungal networks. I mean, mushroom networks, mm-hmm. fungi networks, I mean. And and so they will they will send kind of sugary substances through the fungal networks to keep certain stumps from decaying, whereas other stumps will decay in a short amount of time. I mean, who, you know, and this and this was no breakthrough. This just simply yeah. and there, if there's a certain predator that is uh, attacking one particular tree, then they will send through through the fungal network. They call it the wood wide web. 
Um, you know, that. and other trees then may start, you know, secrete some thing that, you know, that would drive these predators away or something. I mean, and it's amazing. I, I was, I read and saw a show one time they were talking about, um, that in a forest of, of trees, there are actually like trees that are m- like mother trees for the area. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, we, we don't realize going in and, and you know, doing foresting work yeah. or, or when, you know, lumber companies are going in that if they get the wrong tree, they, they may make it really hard for trees to grow there ever again. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> because just, of the root system that has been built by the mother tree. Yeah, there's so much that we can, you know, that we're learning that just needs to be disseminated. So yeah. that's what makes me an optimist. I mean, you know, this thing that I have to believe that this information is going to get in the right hands and <laughs> power of the people, information of the people. Good. Well, I'm, thank yeah. you. I, 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 we could go on for hours talking okay. about this. I, I'd love to, you know, keep, keep this conversation yeah. going and maybe we can, as, as you get through this book, we can, we oh, can, sure, we yeah. can, we yeah, can re- I just talked, talked with my co-author today. One of the interesting things, um, the guy that I'm working on the book with, and, and, uh, we don't have a, you know, we're still kind of in the outline stage is a guy named Christopher Leinberger. And he's a former real estate developer who now teaches in the business school at George Washington University. And he has, uh, really been studying and covering the whole notion of walkable communities for, oh, geez, probably 15 years now from a real estate perspective, but also from why they're important just to make lives better for mm-hmm. people. And and he says there's such a demand for um, walkable communities right now that he imagines over the next 15 or 20 years, nearly every, na- I mean, this is kind of uh, a social this has social consequences, but nearly every kind of old historic walkable pre-World War II neighborhood will probably become revitalized, huh. you know? And so, and that's right, right now where an awful lot of, you know, lower income people live, yeah. you know, and hopefully it'll be revitalized in a way that they're not driven out of their neighborhoods, but right. just simply there's such a huge demand for it. And, you know, so the job now is how to take the places that, that were, you know, created after 1950 and how to make those places, you know, kind of retrofit them to make them walkable. You know, and this has huge consequences for, as we've discussed so thoroughly here, you know, people's happiness, people's sense of community, climate change, crime. Um, Livelihood. The strength, yeah, and the, and the whole bit. So, you know, it's a, we, it's, it's a, it feels like a really perilous time. And, and sometimes I just even dread looking at my phone in the morning just to see what happened the night before. But at the same time, there's just opportunities there. And it's just, uh, I just have to believe, you know, that, you know, like the trees in the forest will prevail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. Well, I, I appreciate your optimism and I yeah. try to have the same and I try to bring as much of this out there as possible too. And I think there are, you know, people like you who are, who are out there, sort of pushing these ideas out there so that, you know, it becomes part of the the public consciousness too. So, yeah, it's been really fun talking. I yeah. Know this is, you, this you're too. Blast, so. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, sure. Jay Wall Jasper, folks. Always such an engaging conversation with Jay. His writing is much like this conversation feels like you're hanging out with him and, and getting his observations. He's also a, a really good listener, not just in conversation, but culturally he seems to keep an ear to the ground and delivers back to us what is the simple and obvious truth that is often overlooked. 
The one that is still ringing in my ears from our conversation is the community is the expert. To me, this means that not only should the community be consulted, but it means that we should make our voices heard in the decision-making in our communities. I also love this idea. Uh, you know, Jay mentioned this idea about our, our, our commons, the things that we all share, like our sidewalks, schools, parks, roads, coffee shops, sky, and internet. Thinking about it in this way offers an opportunity to have influence with our personal choices and our involvement. And if we feel a sense of ownership, we're more likely to become stewards of our common spaces. And thanks to Jay for taking the time to sit with me for this conversation. Again, if, if you'd like to join me on the Highway to Health, you can be a contributor by committing a simple monthly donation to this endeavor. Go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. As always, I love to hear from you as well. Shoot me an email anytime at jeremy at highway to health podcast.com. Let me know what you thought of this topic and of the podcast in general. And if you have a guest you'd like to have uh, me have a conversation with, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. I have two guests in the upcoming weeks who both came from listeners of the podcast. In fact, one of them was a listener himself who has brought me into his organization recently, and I'll be talking to him on the podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Be good to yourself. Be kind to each other and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.